Let's bow our heads, shall we, for a word of prayer here before we start. Before we look to the word, let's look to the Lord. Gracious God and Father, we ask thee tonight for clarity of mind for each one of us. You know what our understanding is of ourselves and our place before God. You know what our understanding of God himself is. And our Father, we pray tonight that thy word and thy spirit that it would be so evident as they come to us and explain to us who the wonderful God of the ages is and what his wonderful salvation is, that each one of us might learn to appreciate him more, those that are saved. And those that do not, as we have just heard, know that they have been born again or born from above or whatever it may be that they think in their mind the terminology is, if they don't know it, we ask tonight, that they would be certain before they walk out of this place that they understand and that they have received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. We look forward to this time in the Word as we always do, and we commit it unto Thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Just thinking this evening briefly about a, uh, a little animal that I read about numerous years ago. It's not one that we hardly ever see. Uh, We have a lot of them back home in our pastures, in our cow pastures, and they leave little mounds of dirt and things like that, but you never see them. But there's one interesting fact about this little animal called the mole. And it's this simple fact that if you find one alive, you'll never see his eyes open. But if you find one dead for whatever reason, his eyes will always be open that's fascinating isn't it they live in the darkness under the ground but you see them when they're alive their eyes will never be open but you see them when they're dead they will always be open i'd like to just translate like that just a little bit and at least say this that you and i are living beings today and living souls and it would be a tragedy if during our lives and during our life that our eyes were somehow closed concerning the things of eternity, what's beyond the grave, what's next, but then to pass on into eternity after we die and to find that only then did we fully understand what salvation meant, who God was and where I stood before Him. That would be the ultimate travesty. Our Savior spoke in Scripture of these who whose eyes they had to see, but they did not perceive. And they had ears to hear, but they did not hear. But if there's one thing, one question, or maybe we should say two questions, that this book loves to answer and answers for us tonight, it is these questions. Who is God? And how can I be made right in His sight? Now, it can be said in various ways, and you might say it in various ways. How can I inherit eternal life? How may I be forgiven? How may I know for certain that I'm on my way to glory as a son of God? You might express it in different ways. But if there are questions that the Bible answers, above all, it would be these. Who is God? And how can I obtain eternal life, that eternal life which he offers? Thank the Lord for this book. And we're going to spend some time tonight back in the Old Testament. And I'd like you to turn there if you have a Bible. We'll take the time to read these sections as well. But I'd like you to turn back to the book of Psalms and to Psalm 139. We're going to take up just portions of this psalm. And then we're going to look to the New Testament. To another book called the book of John. And as I think about men who have lived in this world and the ideas that they have put forth concerning their own existence and eternal life and all of this, I, in, at least in my own mind, place these two men, King David of the Old Testament and this fisherman in the New Testament, this John, as perhaps those two men with the, the tenderest of hearts of just about anybody that I've ever read or ever heard of. And their understanding of God and these questions that we have referred to are so deep. Now, there are a lot of ideas out there in this world. 
And we're not here to reason with individuals on this level tonight. We want to look at not the counterfeit, but that which is true. But sometimes these mind, these things do come to mind, do they not? We think of the, the polytheist, he's called, who says so many things are God. And whether it's the sun in heaven or the tree that's right there that screams when it's cut down, or whether it's the cancer cell or whether it's the drunk murderer or whoever it may be, they're all God. And it doesn't make much sense, does it? Or that pantheist that says everything is God and there's really no good and there's no evil whatsoever. And that cancer cell that may be taking the life of my own mother. Is it good or is it evil? And the doctor that comes along and says, I'm going to go ahead and fix it and I'm going to kill that cancer cell. Is he good or is he evil? It's nonsensical, isn't it? It just doesn't make any sense. And sometimes rather than looking beyond, we start to look inward and we say, well, maybe we're all that there is. And the humanist, that wonderful manifesto, and I put it in quotes as this. Here's Charles Manson saying, if you're God and I'm God, then what difference does it make? You see, I can do anything I'd like to do. Well, if one person can't rule, what about society rules? We have phrases these days called things like the new barbarianism. What in the world is that? Society rules, does it, right? Look back, 1944. And there's a Jew standing at the door of an incinerator. And in moments, you may smell burning flesh. And you say, does society rule? Is that right? And it's ludicrous, isn't it? And I just thank the Lord that he has seen fit to give us a book that explains to us the truth of all things. And as we said, who God is and the way that he has made for you to eternal life in glory. Psalm 139 in the book of Psalms. Now, these are songs, aren't they? A lot like we sung earlier. These are not chapters in the book of Psalms. It would be incorrect for us to say, turn to Psalm chapter 139. Because you notice it's not called that. These are the outflowing of a heart. Could be during times of distress, during times of joy. But these are the songs of the heart. And David, this king, is going to give us tonight, I think, one of the best pictures of the heart and the character of God that a person could possibly have. I'll tell you, this is a day of caricaturing God and looking at him in a way that is completely out of perspective. And David is going to talk to us about what's real. I think of a couple uh, funny little stories here. I have a lot of fishermen in my family. Uh, One of them's name is Justin. I remember him telling the story on one occasion that there was a certain person on a block on his block that always seemed to come up with the biggest fish. And sure enough, he'd walk down the street with his scale, and the scale would read, you know, high numbers, right? He's got this bass on there that looks like it should be about a five-pounder, but it says like nine pounds. And he did this repeatedly. But they caught him one day because he came out with his newborn son. And he stuck it in that little bowl underneath the scale, and he's walking proudly up and down the street. And he said, look at my new son. And they looked at the scale and it said 37 pounds. He said, aha, the wrong measurement. And we can measure God all wrong, can't we? We can make assumptions about him that are not right. I love to tell this little story about young people when we saw them coming up earlier. And I don't know if they quite know these things yet. They know the alphabet. But there were a bunch of little kids sitting around in a classroom one day. And the teacher was asking them to use certain parts of speech in sentences, right? He and she is, I am, those kinds of things. And it comes to this little boy who never said anything in class. The teacher calls on him, and the beads of sweat are coming down his forehead. And he says to little whatever his name is, Teddy or something, use I in a sentence. And Teddy says, big deep breath, right? I is, she stopped him right there. She said, that's not right. We've just been learning what? It's not I is, it's I am. Now finish your sentence. And he tries it again. He couldn't think of another sentence, so he was going to give it a try again. So he said, I is 
the ninth letter in the alphabet. Right on, right? And we make these assumptions that one thing is correct when it's not correct or something is incorrect when it is correct. And David's going to come to us today and share us what the truth about the eternal God is. Let's read it here in Psalm 139. And we're just going to break this chapter up into four simple parts. Notice with me how many verses are in it. 24, right? Somebody who's better at English than that little lad can tell me if we divide 24 by 4, what do we get? Excellent. Boy, there's a young voice. That's quick. Six. So we're going to divide this chapter up into four simple sections of six verses. Read with me in verse 1. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. And I would just like to put a simple title over this, this section of six verses, which is this. He knows. God knows. Look at verse 1. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known. He knows everything about you. And he knows everything about me. You cannot put a fig leaf on in front of God. Look at the simple things that he knows or that he pays attention to in verse 2. You know me when I sit down. I mean, that's one of the simplest actions in life. And you know me when I stand up. We're doing it at least four times a day right here in these meetings. You know every time I sit down. And every time that I stand up, the littlest, most minute, simple motions in my life, the Lord knows, the Lord knows you. He compasses my path, my lying down. The end of verse 3, it says, He's acquainted with all of my ways. He knows all about me, does he not? And he says in verse 6, such knowledge, it's too wonderful for me, David says. It is high. I, I cannot fully understand it. I cannot attain unto it. How God could know every little thing in my life. That's the first thing that David wants us to know about God. There should be no misconception about that. That God knows you and he knows everything about you. And everything about me. Now I said that we were going to move a little bit to the New Testament also. And I will just tell you a bit of a story in John chapter 4. This beloved writer John is going to tell us about a certain woman. And this woman in the heat of the day comes to gather water from a well. And she doesn't do so in the evening when it's nice and cool like it is out tonight when all of the others perhaps were going to gather water because she didn't want them to see her and she didn't want to have to talk to them because she was a sinner. And I'm sure that it was weighing upon her mind and weighing upon her heart and she goes in the heat of the day when nobody in their right mind would want to go to the well but the Lord Jesus knew that she would be there. And God decides that he's going to meet with that woman right there by that well. He's going to make an offer to her that he could give unto her living water so that she would never, ever thirst again. He would become her provision for the rest of her life, her satisfaction for the rest of eternity. That's the offer he was going to make. But he wanted to get her attention first. And he, knowing her, says this to her. He says, go and call your husband. And she said, rightfully, I don't have a husband. What does the Lord respond with? Well, that's exactly right, right? You've had how many husbands? Does anybody remember? Five of them, he says, in fact. And the man that you're now living with is not your husband, right? And she comes to find out that this is a man that knows everything about her. Everything about her sin as well. And when she decides to place her trust in the Lord Jesus Christ 
And that sin is taken off from her back and removed forever from her. She goes into the city where she lived, and now she, in a sense, stands up in front of them all. Forget going in the evenings when the rest of them are going for water. Let's just go talk to them all. And she says this, you come see a man that told me everything that ever I did. And I would like to add something to that and still loves me. Don't you think she felt that way? That no matter what she was like and the depths of sin that she was in and the mistakes that she had made, she could say, this is a God that knows everything about me. And he still loves me and he still longs for me to be his own and to be in his presence. That's profound, isn't it? And so David comes before us and he says, God knows everything. Look at verse six. We just read it. I think it could be simplified this way. David says, God knows, that's verse 1, and I don't, that's verse 6. I don't. I mean, I don't know the difference between an eon and a photon and a crouton, right? But God does. He's the infinite God of the ages, and He knows all things, all things, and He knows intimately everything about us. So David shares that with us right away, and you could just put that title over it if you'd like to, at least in your mind. His knowledge of me, he knows. Now let's move on a little bit in verse 7. Because David's going to tell us a second thing about God so that we never caricature him again. This second thing is this. David says, where shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed, he says, in Sheol or in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hides not from thee, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. He knows is what we said David told us first. But now let's add something else to it. He's near. His nearness to me. And David says it doesn't matter where I go. I cannot flee from the Lord. I love some of the pictures that he brings before our mind. And we won't look up and look at too many of them. But I mean, you talk about the roller coaster of existence. Look at this first verse. If I ascend up into heaven, you're there. If I go down into Hades or into hell, you're there. That's the ultimate up and down, isn't it? Look at the next verse. Even there shall thy hand lead me. Thy right hand shall hold me. If I say the darkness shall cover, well, there is no such thing as darkness in God's eyesight. Look at this other verse here in verse 12. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike unto thee you will never do anything in the dark god is so near and when we sin and when we fall short of his perfection and when we do good deeds and whatever they may be we do so at the very foot of the throne of god it's as though we're living right at his feet he's sitting on his throne and and he's right there he's so close There's nothing near. I love verse 9. If I take the wings of the morning, the word is literally rays. If I were to grab the very first ray of the morning as it comes over wherever east is here, when that first ray comes over the mountainside, and if I were to be able to jump up and take it or to grab it and to go shooting off into wherever it was going to take me at 186,000 miles per second, I could never outpace God. He would still be there. And David is rejoicing in this fact. Now, many people today and perhaps you here tonight are not rejoicing in that fact. Because you see, again, there are no fig leaves with God. God knows. And David wants us to realize how close the Lord is to us. It doesn't matter where we are. Blaise Pascal once said, his center is everywhere and his circumference is nowhere. 
God is everywhere. I'm always somewhere, but God is always everywhere. His nearness to me, I can never get beyond the Lord himself. He's always there. In the New Testament, we've been talking about this man, John. And there's a little story that comes up right after that woman who goes to the well. And it's a certain nobleman, quite a contrast to the woman that had come to meet the Lord at that well. And this nobleman has a child who is sick. But this nobleman has a realization, just like David did. He's going to learn, he's going to realize that the Lord Jesus can do anything that he wants to anywhere in this world because he's everywhere. And this nobleman comes up and he says, I'd like you to come with me back to my house to heal my child. And in effect, the Lord says, your child is healed. And there they are standing miles and miles away. And that man had to take a journey, probably overnight, and go back home. Didn't even know if his child was healed or not. But he had to take that journey and find out that the Lord Jesus, though he was standing there, he was there too with his child. And he was everywhere. And David says concerning the Lord, he knows everything about you. And he's always right next to you. There's nothing closer to you tonight than the God of eternity. And he's looking into your heart. And oh, he longs to see you turn to him. I love this little story about a child whose father was an atheist. And it's been told in many different forms, I know, through the ages. But the little child who trots home from church from Sunday school and tells her daddy about all that transpired in Sunday school and is sharing with him about how good God is and maybe how near God is. And, and the father, who's this atheist, is always trying to back things up and, you know, deprogram her after she gets home and share certain things with her that completely attempt to, to annihilate what the teacher or what the others were sharing with this little child. And so he's trying to be smart, you know, and he writes down on this piece of paper, God is nowhere, right? And he writes that down for his child, who's pretty beginning as far as its learning ability. And, and he wants the child to read it. And so the child sits down to read it and looks at what her daddy had written. And she, she just simply reads it this way. God is, well, she sounds it out very carefully, now here. God is now here. You see, you can't outpace the Lord, can you? And this little child, from the mouth of a little child, there's that recognition well, thank you, Daddy. You just said it again. God is now here. David says to you tonight, God is here. Let's look at this next section, beginning in verse 13, because David's going to go on and share something else with us. Not only does he know everything about us, and not only is he near to us, but we're going to find out that he's interested in us. And that's what I'd like to put as a title over this. He's not just out there somewhere watching and knowing and near, but he's infinitely interested in you, intimately interested in you. Verse 13 says, Thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect. And in thy book, all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. And when I am awake, I am still with thee. The Lord is interested in us, is he not? It's a lovely little story in the scripture that simply tells us that the Lord is interested in the sparrow. And the intimation is that if he's interested in the sparrow, he's interested in you too. My wife's from North Carolina, and I can remember not at her home, but sitting in some homes in western North Carolina. This one particular lady had a bird feeder, and she would always call us over to the window when some cool bird came to the bird feeder. And you haven't seen colors like this before, right? Brilliant yellows and reds and blues. And, but I can honestly tell you this. I never once had her call me to the bird feeder when there was a sparrow on it. Never once. 
But God says, I'm concerned about it. And if his eye is on the sparrow, then I know he watches me. He is interested in you, dear friend. So much so that he loves you. Look at this verse 13. Thou hast possessed my reins. Now we sort of come from horse country, my wife and I back home. There's at least a number of horses and mostly a bunch of cowboys, you know, and cow horses and cutting horses and ranch horses and all these kinds of things. But that's not what it's talking about when it says you possess the reins. You never want to be on a good sport horse and lose the reins. I'll tell you that much. Because if you don't possess them, you're in deep, serious trouble. Because you won't be possessed by the back of that horse very long. But that's not what it's talking about, is it? It's the word for rene, for the inward parts. And the Lord says, I have possessed them. I know them. I understand them. You have covered me. The word covered there is literally the word rendered woven me in my mother's womb. And you have taken those sinews and those veins and those arteries and those muscles and, and you've woven them together into a tapestry such that there is nothing like it on the face of this earth. Do you know that the story of the Old Testament at the beginning is this, that God created this tremendously beautiful stage upon which we walk. And we can come to Yosemite and it's evident His eternal power and His Godhead and His wisdom. But the Lord didn't stop there. Yosemite was not the crown of His creation. He created a being that He wove together And he placed it at the very crown of his creation. And it was called mankind. And he created a man. And he created a woman. And after them, many, many children. And after them, you. Do you realize tonight that God feels as though you are literally the crown of his creatorial power and his wisdom? I just ran across a couple of different things today, and I just want to relate you to them as I was reading some. When I think of the human hand, it's the most wonderful tool in the, in the world, isn't it? In the toolbox of the world, there's nothing like the human hand. Listen to some of these other facts. The heart, it, it pumps 2.1 thousand gallons of blood per day. That's pretty amazing. And you've never once willed your heart to beat. You know, wake up in the morning, all right, get going, right? Get moving. It just happens, doesn't it? The Lord does it. 2,100 gallons a day. 62,000 miles of blood vessels have been woven together by the Lord into that body which you inhabit. The eye and through the optic nerve move 20 billion bits of information per second. And this little three-pound mass in here, which is the most sophisticated three pounds in the universe, is able to sort it all out. And even if you forget 90% of what you've learned, they say that, you know, you still know hundreds of times the amount of information in the Library of Congress. It's something like, you know, 100,000 sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's what you retain if you forget 90%. But you see, those are just the casket in which the soul lies, in which your eternal soul lies. And that's what the Lord longs to be in fellowship with. And he has in mind for you a body one day that is never going to hurt and never going to weep and never going to fall down and never going to wonder and never not going to understand, but a glorified body wherein that soul, that spirit is going to dwell forever. I'll tell you, redemption is a wonderful thing. He says, I am so interested in you that I've woven you together. David says, I'll praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works and my soul knoweth it right well. Look at this little phrase, curiously wrought in verse 15. My substance was not hid from you when I was made in secret and curiously wrought. And I believe this refers to the womb in the lowest parts of the earth. Can you think of something else in Scripture that was curiously wrought? The Bible scholars here amongst us. There's one thing in the Old Testament that a very famous man amongst the Jews would wear. And his garments were curiously wrought, right? This idea of weaving it together, a tapestry. 
And God has in a wonderful way woven you together. But he doesn't just stop there. In verse 16, he sees us even while we were yet unperfect, before we were completed, before we were fully fashioned. In verse 17, then he goes on, says David, to say this, how precious, Lord, are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. And when I am awake, I am still with thee. Do you realize that you, whether you have placed your trust in the Lord Jesus or not tonight, that you have a God in heaven that is near to you, that knows you, that has so many thoughts about you as an individual that David says that mathematics is too dull of a science even for you to count them. And you can get on your knees and count every last grain of sand on the seashores of the world and go underwater if you'd like to and hit the riverside here in Yosemite. And you can start all over again tomorrow. And you won't even be able to begin to comprehend how much the Lord thinks about you and how much the Lord thinks of you. Now that's important, isn't it? Because that's what we're going to come to next. David says, yes, he knows all about me and he's very, very near to me. And he is intimately interested in every facet of my being. But he's so interested in us that he's going to give his son that we might be cleansed. David's going to go on in the end of this psalm. And sometimes we sit there as we read it by our nightstand and say, Lord, why did you have to ruin the end of the psalm and start talking about sin, right? After a great psalm like this. But, oh, David is going to be able to rejoice in this fact that God can take those sins and take them away. Let's read these verses. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee. I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thought. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, David was a brave man. And David had faced the bears of Yosemite and they probably weren't the tame ones like we have here. And David had faced the lion. And David had faced the best soldier that the world had to offer. And David, as a king, had faced the best armies that the world had to offer. But there was no signal or single act of courage that was ever higher than this. When David looks to God at the end of this psalm, and he says, Oh God, you come into my heart and into my life, and you search it and you look for the fugitive thoughts of my mind as they flee. And you look for the thoughts, even before they're formed, that may be sinful and wicked. And Lord, you take any action and any source of that action, and I want you to take it and to eradicate it and to wipe my slate clean, if you can do it. And David says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Do you know that word for wicked that's used in verse 19 is literally the word for forced labor. The driving power of sin in our life. Ask Samson, right? Those of you that know your Old Testament. The blinding, grinding power of sin in a man's life. And David says, this is what we need taken care of, Lord. 
If you are such a great God who, who knows me and who loves me and who is interested in me and who has built me from the time that I was in my mother's womb and that has so many thoughts about me, O oh God, then surely you can remove anything that could separate me from thyself. Surely you could do that. And do you know that in the New Testament, David's Lord is going to be shown to us as that very one who is going to step into this world, a God who, because He loves us so much, is going to come through the very door of His creation and become a man to live amongst men, to die for men, to live a perfect life so that He could pay the penalty because the wages of sin is death and He did not have that wage to pay. And he creates an infinite credit value, does he not? That you may take if you will only have him. You may not remember July 20th, 1969. But after thousands of scientists and many, many years and millions of people watching on what they called television back then, it doesn't look exactly like it looks today. They watched a man when he placed his foot on the moon. It's a big event, isn't it? But there was a time two millennia ago when God, and maybe nobody was there, maybe just a few shepherds who were maybe the only ones that cared about the birth of a little lamb anyway, but God set foot on the earth and he came into this world so that he could save you, so that he could take your sin and remove it from you forever and forever. I'd like us to go to a couple of passages in the New Testament, and then I'd like to talk about this idea of decision. Let's turn to John, if you will, with me. To the book of John, and if you don't have your Bible, we'll just read some of these verses. We'll read some familiar verses to start with. In John chapter 1, we read this in verse 11. Let's go back to 10 because it refers to a little bit what we have been talking about. He was in the world, speaking of the Lord Jesus. And the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But notice this, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. I think, again, one of the most profound statements in Scripture when we talked about what Scripture answers. There's this question given by a man who's about to commit suicide in a prison. He's lost all of his prisoners. And he cries out at the point of his step into eternity. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is clear. And it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 16. And I hope this is a familiar verse to you. When you talk about God's nearness and his interest in you, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And you may have noticed this, that in this verse there are two simple parts. One is God's part and the other is your part. Well, you can be sure that God's going to take care of his part because he loves you. And the scripture says God so loved that he sent his only begotten son that of which he only had one could have done a lot of things for you but he gave his beloved son but your part is there too isn't it whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life let's go to first john chapter 5 since we've been thinking about this man with a near and a dear heart to the lord first john chapter 5 and verse 11 now and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life. 
and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name or on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Do you have the Lord Jesus Christ tonight? Are you certain of that? Did you notice that David was sharing with us back in Psalm 139 all of these great things about God and and all of his care for people? But he gets to the end of that psalm and he personalizes it. He takes it to his own heart. And I'm going to ask you tonight to think about your own soul, to be brave enough to think about your own eternity and to be brave enough to discern whether you have received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Can you do that like David? You see, if you have the Son, you have life. And if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. And the question for you tonight is, as the Lord, that intimate listener, is sitting right next to your heart, the question for you tonight is, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Now, we sat around at one time, and I said that we would talk just very briefly about decisions. And, and we made up a list of decisions, types of decisions. And you could do the same, and maybe you'd enjoy doing it at some time, and maybe you just think we're crazy. But some decisions are major, right? Other decisions are minor. I mean, where I'm going to go to school, that's relatively major. Who I'm going to marry, that's major. My eternal destiny, that's major. What kind of toothpaste you use tonight, I honestly don't care. That's a minor decision, right? And so some decisions that you can make are major, and some just really don't matter. Some decisions are public. Some decisions are private. I mean, I don't know what kind of toothpaste you use, and I don't even care what kind of a toothbrush you use. That's your call. That's a private decision. Other decisions are very, very public. For instance, when I come to know the Lord Jesus as my Savior, and I decide to follow Him in baptism, that is something that all the other believers see, and we trust the world is there to see. That's a public decision, isn't it? Some are very public. Some are private. Some are yours to make, and others are not yours to make. Who gave you your name? I mean, if you want to change it, you could probably talk to Tom or someone and go through the right legal route. You could probably do that, but you didn't make that decision, did you? Your looks, where did they come from? Man, I wish my dad was more handsome, right? It wasn't my fault. Those are decisions that we cannot make, but some are yours to make. Some are not, but some are yours to make. Some are major. Some are going to affect the rest of your life. And some are only yours to make. Now, some decisions are changeable and others are not. My little daughter, and I don't know why it is. I'm sure it doesn't come from me, maybe from my wife. But she changes clothes probably, I don't know, six, seven, eight times a day. And she can get up in the morning and she decides round two, you know, I'm going to change that first decision. And now the second round isn't any better than the first one. It's backwards too, you know. Have you ever seen people walk around like this with their feet, their shoes going out like that? And I mean, she's not the greatest at it yet. Good thing she's not listening. But she can make that decision and change it. Some decisions you can change. I remember when I was younger, it was right before, you know, a big soccer game. You're 11 years old. I mean, what difference does that make? But you think it's a big game, right? It was the finals in the city of Colorado Springs, 11 years old. My grandma's going to cut my hair. And she pulls out the, uh, well, the clippers, you know, not the scissors, but the clippers. And they had these long things on the end of them that evidently, you know, allowed the certain length hair to remain. And uh, so she put a fairly long one on there and is cranking away on my head. Well, she gets right here in the center And that attachment that she had put on fell off. And it went, well, that was it, you know. She didn't cut this side, and I probably tried to move it over. And here's this 11-year-old going out to the soccer game. That was something that I could not change. And I wanted to change it. Time would have changed it, but I could not change it. We used to have a good friend that came to our Bible studies back home. His name was Bo. 
And Bo was kind of a crazy guy. One of the things that he did during the summers was he would dive off of 85-foot platforms at the county fairs into eight feet of water. And he said, you know, it's just a matter of learning. You, you start at about 10 feet, and you go to 15, and you go to 25, and you do your flips, and when you hit the water, you know, you just move those legs and feet right out, and you don't need more than six or eight feet of water, even if you're going into 85 feet. And I'll tell you, when you jump off something like that, we've done it not in places like this, believe you me, but we used to like to jump off of things at Lake Powell and so forth. And once you jump, I can honestly tell you, you cannot change your mind. That's it. That's it. Now, it's hard to make that decision, but once you make it, that's the end. And some decisions you can change. Other decisions you cannot change. Some decisions are now, and some decisions you can make later. I don't know how many of you play baseball, but you're standing there at home plate, and the ball's coming at your head at about, well, I've never seen a 90-mile-an-hour fastball, but let's say 75. You've got a quick decision to make, don't you? It's got to be immediate. You're driving on a road, and a deer pops out in front. It's got to be immediate. I mean, some decisions you can put off. You want to paint your room back home, purple, pink, or brown, whatever. You can put that off till next week if you'd like to do that and decide the color then and paint it a year later. But some decisions you have to make right now. And when we look at the eternal destiny of our soul and the fact that yesterday's history has been written and the ink is dry and tomorrow's may never be written, that Scripture comes to us and comes alongside and says, Today is the day of salvation. I remember one of the stories that influenced me when I was younger, and it was told by Boyd Nicholson. I made a mention of a story that he told earlier today. And it was a story of a young man who loved to ride motorcycles. And he had sort of made a profession when he was younger, but his life didn't show it. And little by little, he moved away from the Lord, and his parents were certain that he wasn't saved. There was a knock that came on their door one night. It was a dark night. It was late at night. And it was a knock that they weren't waiting for. And there was a sheriff that came to the door. And the sheriff had to tell the mother and father as they were standing there that their son that night had lost control of his motorcycle and had hit a tree and his life was done. But in comfort, this sheriff says to them, but he said, I know this isn't much consolation, but I want to at least share this with you, that he never knew what happened. He never had a second thought. And oh, if you could have pricked that parent's heart any worse, he never had a second to think about his soul. You just don't know, do you? Some decisions are major, and there is no decision that's more major than this. And some decisions need to be made now, don't they? You look at Scripture and God in His long-suffering, it just seems like the time is getting shorter and shorter. I mean, people used to live 969 years. And Moses preached for 120 years with every hammer blow that's proceeding right from the ark. And Nebuchadnezzar, seven years he acts like an animal in the grass of the field. And at the end he comes out and he says, Oh, thou art the most high God, but seven years. Nabal, I tell you, David wants to take his life. His wife comes, pleads with him and says, Give him ten days. Give him 10 days. You get to the New Testament. And there's a man by the name of Herod. And it's said today. There's a rich man. And it says of him, This night shall thy soul be required of thee. Then who shall these things be? And God's timeline, it just seems, is getting shorter and shorter. And oh, if there's one decision to be made in your lifetime, it is a decision to be made tonight for the Lord himself. And David again comes to us and he says, Dear friend, there is a God in glory that is near to you. 
There is a God in glory that loves you. There is a God in glory that is so interested in you. He created you to be his child in glory forever and forever and to live with him in in heaven. That's how interested he is. And no matter what you've done in life and how you've turned your back, the Lord can cleanse it, David says. And if you will only tonight call upon God to search your heart, And to cause you and allow you to understand the simplicity of the gospel. To say, Lord, I believe you. That you are the eternal God who has come as man. Has risen again to conquer death. And I long for you to be my Savior now, tonight. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for thy word. Thankful that you were so interested in you that, that in us that you gave us a book that would explain to us concerning your infinite love. And Father, oh, we pray tonight for every last soul here tonight who has not experienced that love, who may not have a full understanding of exactly what salvation is even. But we pray that as they walk backwards out of this amphitheater tonight, that they will not pass beyond its confines without thinking about their eternal soul and its destiny. And Father, no matter what it takes, like that man who had to have the tiles ripped away from the roof to be placed into the central place of God, right in the presence of the Lord Jesus, that they will do whatever is necessary tonight to understand and to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And oh, what a joy it would be for us tonight. And what an immeasurably greater joy it would be for that soul tonight to receive the Lord Jesus as their Savior. We pray for them tonight. And we pray that you will not allow them to rest until they have settled up with the eternal God of the ages who loves them. We commit them unto thee tonight. We commit ourselves unto you tonight. We pray for the future outreach in the gospel tonight as it goes forth in Curry Village, and we commit that to thee as well. And we pray all of this in the blessed and the powerful and the saving name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.